look at field trips as adventures. I've always done that way. I never know what I'm going to encounter. And so we were out one time at a Gem Eco Lab and in one of the woods, but on the coast, it was um, very close to Bold Coast Trail. Mm -hmm. And so we get out there, yeah, look out. Is that a seal? Two seals? No, they're otters. And they were doing this thing we see with the uh, Pacific otters, uh, warming the feet in the air yeah. with the sun. I said, oh, the heck with the lab. Just let's sit down and watch it. And we did for 15, 20 minutes. Then we did our lab. But I, I, this was just an extraordinary experience. From the northern and easternmost coast in the United States, you're listening to Down East Viewpoints, a sense of place, a sense of self. Thanks for joining me, Claire Deal, Virginia College professor and summertime Down East resident, as I interview local people who are passionate about preserving and protecting the Gulf of Maine's bays, islands, and marine life. I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Gail Krauss, University of Maine at Machias professor and researcher, wildlife rehabilitator, labyrinth garden creator and landscape artist, and passionate teacher and learner. We met early in the summer when Dr. Krauss and several of her marine biology students came over to Little Kennebec Bay to gather data from a dead harbor seal that I found washed up on the shore. Today we are meeting again this time in the Woods Labyrinth on UMM's campus. A magical place for hobbits and people alike. It's a beautiful day to be outside, warm and sunny with a cool Maine breeze to boot. Today's a work day. So after our interview, we'll get to work cleaning up the paths on the labyrinth with the help of a couple of Dr. Krause's devoted students, Molly Stewart and Hannah Martell. In our conversation today, you'll hear more about how the Woods Labyrinth came to be, the second labyrinth that Dr. Krauss envisioned and created with the UMM community. The first, a flower garden, is a circular maze of sensory delights in color, texture, shape, and smell. Like the Woods Labyrinth, it is quite lovely. Before we begin, let me tell you a little about Dr. Krauss's work at UMM these past 40 years. Yes, 40. She teaches a number of courses, including marine mammals and pelagic birds and skeletal preparation, and a lot of ologies, including oceanography, ichthyology, invertebrate zoology, ornithology, and general ecology. As I learned on the shore of the bay back in July, Dr. Krauss and her students have participated in the Marine Mammal Stranding Network based at the College of the Atlantic, just down the road in Bar Harbor, for over a decade, assessing the status of numerous harbor seal pups, gray seal pups, and juvenile harp seals, rescuing and performing triage on various seals, and collecting basic data from a variety of dead whales, dolphins, and seals, the latter of which was the task when we first met. Field work, as we'll soon learn, is an essential element of Dr. Krauss's teaching and of UMM's marine biology program on the whole. Students in her courses participate in numerous monitoring programs for various organisms from the tiniest zooplankton to birds of all sorts to whales. As a professor myself, I can attest to the impact of experiential, hands-on learning. In the next episode of Downey's Viewpoints, which features Molly and Hannah, the young women explain 
that the opportunity to do field work along Downey's shores and forests contributed mightily to their decision to study at UMM. Thank you so much for agreeing to an interview. To begin, I'd like to ask you about the demographic of students in the marine biology program at UMM. In both of our adventures on the shore with seals, first on Little Kennebec Bay and second on the Bold Coast at West Quaddy Light, the students working alongside you gathering data were women. Is that pretty typical? This is actually my 40th year of teaching. I've just completed, so 41st this year. And uh, over the years, it's gone from predominantly men to predominantly women in classes. We do have a mix, and we do have a mix of ages, so we do get a fair number of non-trad students, uh, maybe vets, or maybe people currently in military as well and taking courses, all sorts of different people. So I've had students from early college all the way up into their 60s, 70s, 80s in classes. So really a lot of fun. But the, there is a predominance of women now, particularly in traditional age. Yeah. On the whole, you know, uh, everybody jumps in, guys or gals. Um, and they're attracted to the program for that reason. They know it's going to be a lot of hands-on, a lot of field work. So I would much rather be outside than in, which is a good thing this year with COVID. And <laughs> because as many of my lectures that I can do outside, I'm going to. So this location may turn out to be my lecture room for some of the classes. Not a bad Pull up lesson. a log and <laughs> tell yeah. them all to bring clipboards this year. Congratulations on 40 years. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. That's the, the really exciting part, as I've said to students, is not that I'm still moving, but <laughs> which is part of it, I guess. But the, the second part is that I'm as enthusiastic, if not more so now, than I was. And I was pretty enthusiastic that first year, so <laughs> yeah. I'm still learning. That's one of the big things I think people make a mistake. They stop learning. They stop altering their classes. I'm constantly putting new things as I learn new things, and so it's always fresh. Let's talk about the labyrinth, and then we'll go yep. back to the sure. various courses that you teach. Sure. Um, I Back in 2003, we were going through one of the many hard times that schools go through. So I said, let's, let's find something positive. Lord of the Rings had come out. Most of my students were really into those movies. And um, I have always loved mazes and, and um, labyrinths, and I've always made mazes of tarps in my barn or in my, my um, uh, attic for, for Halloween parties and things like that. So that's where all this came together. So we found this design that supposedly is the one the Minotaur was put in. It's over 2,000 years in, in age. And I worked on the administration until I got a yes <laughs> of where I could put it. So they finally said, okay, you can do it in the woods. So we got in August of 2004, we got a, a woods person, to, a har harvester to come in and, and cut all the dead trees. And the labyrinth is a little over 100 by 100 feet. And so the idea would be that we'd line uh, the pathways and little gardens of about a foot or two between between the pathways, and that would be what we'd be looking at. So, mm. so I walked in here about mid-August, and it was a huge pile of pickup sticks, <laughs> uh, 
huge logs over over the height that was that's not very tall but <laughs> but still over five feet and uh so it was like oh my and somebody said why don't we get this ready for homecoming which was october Whoa. so okay so ultimately over 50 people volunteered their time students faculty staff people who accidentally walked by and <laughs> when i was here like help i need to move this log and many bottles of ibuprofen later <laughs> uh, we started on one we couldn't we couldn't clear the whole area it was huge so um so we just started peeling off the logs and putting them in quadrant one so if you go on to anything about um, labyrinths and uh, early roman greek slash minotaur labyrinths you'll probably find the design it's very commonly done and so we just started on quadrant one and then it turns 90 degrees and you go to quadrant two and so on and when we got to the center, there was an arching tree over the top of it, diagonally over the top of it. I couldn't believe it because that was not planned. It was just there and a big stone outcrop and lots of loose stones. So we piled the loose stone into sort of like an alder effect. Mm -hmm. And one of my students was up on Grand Lake Extreme area. She said, we have a lot of granite that's exfoliating. So she canoed up and to where there was <laughs> exfoliating granite and brought the, the top stone. I love that you looked for a positive way to kind of help people out of the doldrums of strife at the college. What do you, what else do you love about the teaching piece? The interaction. I did not want to teach at a large school. Mm -hmm. uh, and in part, I think that's why some people get really burned out because you don't teach a lot of different things. Yeah. And you may not even be doing a lot of advising. And here I do a great deal of advising. Most of the time I've got 40 to 60 advisees. Wow. And uh, I know them personally. It's a community feel. From the time I was very young, I knew, I would have had trouble expressing it, but I was drawn to a life of service. It was absolutely a critical part of who I was. And, um I, I would not have been able to say it in that way, mm -hmm. but, but definitely that was what it was. Yeah. So until I walked into a classroom, I thought I would not teach. I, this was not on my radar at all. And uh, I was going to work with animals in mm -hmm. some capacity. So I was thinking of going into the Bronx Zoo and just, you know, working there the rest of my life. Uh, and. <laughs> And I had to take a TA, you know, you want to get all these experiences. So I took a TA position in bio and the Jewish holidays came up first. So I couldn't go and watch somebody else teaching the lab. I had to be the lead. So, so my professor said, um, walk in and sit down like you're one of the students. And of course, I'm just a year, two or three older than them anyway. So I said, sure, and so, and then you stand up. Well, I was hooked at that two hours after, you know, of, of teaching that first lab. I said, that's it, I'm going for a PhD, and this is it. You found your calling, yeah. your exact yeah. calling. It was the only time I ever sort of, um, sort of found myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I was all of a sudden comfortable in this new role that I had never expected because I was shy like crazy. But 
but I love the topic so much that to talk about it is just, it, it happens. I can't turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> it just think comes that out of me. That enthusiasm is <laughs> contagious with your students. Yeah. Just yeah. in my limited time of getting to know a few of them, you can see they've got that, that light. Yes. And I can't yes. wait for you to hear what they said about their feelings about with the work they're doing. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, you'll love it. It's a beautiful specimen, except it's dead. Yes. <laughs> they yeah. were quoting yeah. you. Yeah. But that it can still have some, some benefit. Yes. You know, they just, it's not like, oh, we have to go do this chore. Yeah. So no. it's infectious. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's part of what yeah. I'm learning all the time. I'm constantly expanding my, mm -hmm. my knowledge and experiences. So I look at field trips as adventures. I've always done that way. I never know what I'm going to encounter. Um, so we were out one time at a Gem Eco Lab and in one of the woods, but on the coast. It was um, very close to Bold Coast Trail. Mm -hmm. And so we get out there. Yeah, look out. Is that seal? Two seals? No, they're otters. And they were doing this thing we see with the uh, Pacific otters, uh, warming the feet in the air yeah. with the sun. I said, oh, the heck with the lab. Just let's sit down and watch it. And we did for 15, 20 minutes. Then we did our lab. But I, I, this was just an extraordinary experience. Pads of the feet. I said, ah, forget this. This is too good. You've spoken so eloquently about that connection to the natural world. COVID has come in and done some interesting things, I think, for, for people in the natural world. But where do you see we're going? Is this a good time for nature? Is this, it's, we've done know, so much to harm it. Yeah, it's good and bad. Uh, there's a great deal more awareness. I'm very pleased to see so many very young kids uh, getting involved and being very concerned about climate change. Is it real? Do not understand the psychology, other than if I say it's real, then I have to take some responsibility for it. And I, I guess maybe that's where a lot of this is coming about. It's uncomfortable. Uh, and to think that, okay, I'm part of the problem here, you know? Right. <laughs> and so it's much easier to deny everything, um, which worries me greatly. Uh, and it was one of the reasons I didn't want to have children. I really saw the world being so deeply harmed, and it was so painful for me, even as a young kid, that I thought, I, I'm not bringing somebody into this. Um, I will do everything I can to help those who are here, <laughs> but it's, and, and to make them aware of this, hopefully the beauty, you know, to understand the beauty of why things should be allowed to exist. <laughs> not that it's all for us. Uh, <laughs> so that continues to be a strong motivation for me. I try not to get too much on my soapbox because it turns people off sometimes. Mm -hmm. But just hopefully my enthusiasm spreads to them and I don't have to say a great deal. <laughs> right. Lead by example yes, kind of thing. Yes. Uh, but I'm deeply concerned because obviously um, climate change is happening, extinction is happening, and we have so many people denying all this and wanting me, 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 now, 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 which I think is why we're in so much trouble with COVID. 
I think it's the fact that, okay, we closed down for, you know, two months, and so it's all over now. We, right. we are an impatient society, and I understand they don't like it either, but <laughs> be sensible, people, and, you know, and we're very much into this um, throw-out society, get my cheap throw-out, and that's creating a huge problem. And right now we can't recycle it. It's closed down up here, which is driving me nuts. Yeah. Um, it's stupid, stupid, stupid. We are going to pay for that very deeply uh, with landfills, with air pollution, with everything. What it's doing to the oceans with the microbeads. Oh my gosh. This is crazy, crazy stuff. So we have messed things up so badly. And I feel badly for the, the, early, the younger generations coming now that they've got to deal with this. Yeah, I've asked my niece, um, she's 24, what was sort of the defining moment of your adolescence and into young adulthood? And what's well, climate change, it's global warming. I mean, that's, that's going to be it. And Great. that's good. I'm heartened by what I'm seeing young people doing all across you know, the country. Yeah. They're much more engaged they in are, that. politically, I think, too. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I'm not always sure about that, but they certainly are. Well, I, I get students who don't believe climate change is real, but as they go through a, a college education, they become more and more aware of the fact that it's real. This, you know, this oceanography, you know, you cannot deny these things. And yeah. you teach that sometimes too, oceanography. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm usually the main one doing that now. So um, so I've got a couple of small sections of it this year. And uh, marine mammals, that's <laughs> my others. And um, so yeah, we're talking about all sorts of things from the tides to the um, you know microplastics in mm -hmm. the water, acid rain. And, Yes, we're really messing things up. Unfortunately, there are a lot of things to talk yes, about. Yes, yes, yes. And so they, you know, sea level rise, storms getting worse and worse, the seasons getting longer, storm seasons getting longer. Yes. Uh, all, all related to climate change. I read something, and actually Hannah mentioned this same research, about during COVID when things have been really, really shut down, pretty remarkable decrease in yes. air pollution. Yes. And do you think there's any way to maintain it? I think we'll reverse a great deal, but it's fascinating that the water in Venice became clear. The um, air in China? Yes, the air in China, the air all over Europe. It's, it's close to the earth. Um, pollution re reduced tremendously, so smog and things like that. High in the atmosphere, there's you know still issues, but uh, it was amazing how quickly and how quickly wild animals started coming into cities everywhere when the the traffic wasn't there. I love it. Can you articulate how you define yourself in relation to the natural world, if at all? I and would like to think I'm part of it. <laughs> I really don't want to be on the outside. You know, I, I really feel like I'm part of it and always have. You, you just, you look at the cycles of everything, you know, you're breathing in oxygen and breathing out carbon dioxide and the plants are using it. It's, it's your part of it.
completely. Yeah. Yeah, plain and simple. <laughs> Thank you. Join me again for the next episode of Downey's Viewpoints. If you'd like to contact me, Claire Deal, please email me at downeysviewpoints at gmail.com. Until then, take good care of yourself and the wild and beautiful places you love. <laughs>